the ACOG practice bulletin on obstetric analgesia and anesthesia says that there is no other circumstance in which it is considered acceptable for an individual to experience untreated severe pain that is amenable to safe intervention while the individual is under a physician's care. Many women desire pain management during labor and delivery, and there are many medical indications for analgesia and anesthesia during labor and delivery. And they say that in the absence of a medical contraindication, maternal request is a sufficient medical indication for pain relief during labor. So like I said, again, if you are requesting pain relief during labor, it is your human right to receive that pain relief. Giving birth is one of the most significant events of your life. Sadly, the joy that you should feel can often be replaced with anxiety and helplessness instead. As a labor and delivery nurse, I'm revealing insider information to educate you, reassure you, and decrease your fear. In this podcast, you'll hear empowering birth stories and experts weigh in on a range of topics. Being Jewish also has me exploring Judaism's influence on the reproductive experience. However, I speak to anyone wishing to navigate their journey with more joy and confidence. I'm your host, Hani Fingerer, and you're listening to the Happy Birthway Podcast. Welcome to episode 36 of the Happy Birthway Podcast. In this episode, I'm really excited to be doing what I love to do the most, which is educating. So this is going to be a solo episode where I'm going to talk about everything epidural. Of course, I can't cover every last detail, so this is not going to be exhaustive, but it's going to be pretty comprehensive. Before I start, I wanted to let you know that I had the pleasure of interviewing on Healthful Woman podcast with Dr. Nady Fox. He is a phenomenal OBGYN and high-risk maternal fetal medicine doctor who has a phenomenal, extremely informative podcast on a huge variety of topics. So I highly encourage you to head over to Healthful Woman podcast to listen to all the pearls of wisdom he has to offer. I'm also going to put a link to our interview in the episode show notes so you can access that as well. It's on the topic of baby-friendly hospitals. And I did an episode recently on my podcast about that, but uh, we go into even more detail. And I also love hearing the perspective of a doctor of someone in a different discipline. I also wanted to thank you for continuing to review and rate the podcast. It means so much to me. I read every single rating and review. And with that, let's start talking about epidurals. So what is an epidural? Epidurals are probably the most common form of pain relief used for labor. The great part of an epidural is that it takes away the pain of your contractions. However, it doesn't make you drowsy. And And the actual medication does not go into your bloodstream, um, which means that very, very, very little of it is actually circulating in your bloodstream. And as a result, only trace amounts may enter your baby's bloodstream. So your baby's not really affected um, in terms of the medication entering their bloodstream. So an epidural is what's called a regional block. That means it blocks a region of your body from feeling some form of pain. What happens is, is the anesthesiologist or the certified registered nurse anesthetist will complete the procedure. The procedure doesn't usually take very long, somewhere between 10 and 20-ish minutes or so. Um, Occasionally, it can take a little bit longer if there is some difficulty in finding the correct space. So your epidural space is around your spinal column 
it's not anywhere near the actual spinal cord. So some people just become afraid that, oh, there's going to be medications that are going to be injected right next to my spinal cord. Um, The spinal cord is covered with a very tough tissue. And so it's unbelievably extremely rare for anything to even touch that spinal cord. What will happen is, is you'll sit up straight, you'll be supported probably by a nurse and They will help you with positioning. So you'll kind of curl around like a cat or like a rainbow around your baby um, to stick at the bottom part of your back because that's where the epidural is going to be inserted. And during the procedure, what happens is, is first you, you will feel a pinch and a burn after the anesthesiologist cleans your back and puts a sterile drape on it. I like to compare that to getting a numbing agent for a cavity filling. So it's usually like the worst part of the pain part of the epidural. And once that local anesthetic has a, you know, a few minutes to spread, the rest of the insertion, you may feel pressure, but you shouldn't feel, usually you shouldn't feel all that much pain. If you do, you can always ask for the anesthesiologist to actually give you another dose of the local anesthetic in order to help avoid that pain. So the needle that goes into your epidural space is a pretty big needle. But again, because you have that local pain relief, hopefully you won't really even feel anything, just some pressure. The needle does come out and just a little tiny catheter, like a little tube stays inside of your epidural space. And through that tube, there is an infusion of a combination of two different medications usually. One is a an anesthetic, like a local anesthetic, such as lidocaine or mepivacaine. And the other medication is usually an opioid, which is a pain medication. Most commonly, it's going to be fentanyl. So there's a mix of those two medications, and they will continuously infuse into your epidural space, which means that the epidural cannot run out. It's a continuous infusion. So the anesthesiologist will set a rate to continuously infuse through your epidural space. Now, along with the continuous rate, some hospitals will offer a PCA pump, which is a patient-controlled analgesic pump, which means that you will have your own button to press if you would like some more pain medication to infuse through your epidural space. It's a smart pump, which means that you can't give yourself too much medication, so it locks out at a certain dose and at a certain time interval. So for example, if you can get a dose only every 10 minutes and you hit that button, if you try to hit it five minutes later, it's not going to give you anything. Um, And what is so good about the PCA pump is that we can avoid giving you too much medication from the epidural. The problem with that is that it can make you really numb. We want you to be able to move a little bit so we can avoid giving you too much medication and you can actually control how much it is that you need. So if you start feeling a little bit of pain, then you hit that PCA pump. Sometimes I've seen where anesthesiologists forgot to tell the patient or just neglected to tell the patient that they have that extra feature. So you can always ask if um, your hospital offers that when you get the epidural. With the PCA pump, I always tell patients, we I do have one in the hospital that I work at, I always tell patients, as soon as you start feeling any little bit of any pain, hit it right away. Do not wait because the longer you wait, the more there's going to be catching up to do with the pain. So an epidural is an intervention. Every single intervention in birth has risks and benefits. And the way to choose whether you are going to decide to get an epidural or not is by weighing those benefits and risks and potential side effects against each other. So 
This is why some people opt not to have an epidural because they feel like if they can cope with labor in other ways, then it's good for them to avoid that extra intervention because we will talk about the risks and side effects that can happen as a result. However, for many people, it can be a great thing. So, you know, if you have anxiety from pain, if you're having a long labor, if you're having an induction, if you have some kind of health complications, such as extremely high blood pressure, an epidural can be a really great intervention in these situations. Let's talk about the benefits of the epidural. We discussed how it takes away the pain of the contractions. However, it doesn't make you drowsy so you can stay awake and it doesn't circulate into the baby's bloodstream. If it does, it's like just tiny little traces. Another benefit is that because your pain is controlled, if you had a long labor or if you haven't slept in a while, you can actually get some sleep because you'll feel that pain relief. You can also reposition on a peanut ball and get into certain positions that will be harder to get into when you are not medicated. Um, And of course, you know, we have to weigh one against the other. You can stay much more upright usually and move more when you don't have an epidural. However, it's not like you have to stay on your back if you have an epidural. And if you have a tear, if you have a laceration on your perineum or a vaginal laceration, then an epidural is a great form of pain control, pain relief. Also, if you have to have an emergency C-section, if you already have an epidural in place, then you can avoid having general anesthesia for the C-section. It's very rare to have a true emergency C-section where we have absolutely no warning ahead of time. So just keep that in mind. And that's not a reason in and of itself to get an epidural, but it is a bonus in the rare case where someone would need an emergency C-section that they have an epidural because they can still stay awake since they can add a lot of extra medication into the epidural to control your pain through the C-section. Repositioning during an epidural is really important. You should not stay on your back just because you have an epidural. And unfortunately, I see many times where nurses are really not on top of repositioning the patient, but really every 30 minutes to an hour, you should be repositioning constantly with the epidural because that helps open different parts of your pelvis to help your baby's head rotate and descend. So if your nurse does not initiate repositioning you and doesn't give you a peanut bowl without your request, you can ask for it. This is why I believe in having a doula because a doula can do that as well if your nurse is not able to, if the hospital that you're giving birth at doesn't provide peanut bowls, etc. So now that we discussed the benefits, let's discuss the side effects and the risks. And I'm dividing them into two separate things because side effects are effects that are not desired from the epidural, but, um, you know, there's something that you can live with. It's not, you know, life-threatening or harmful. And then when I say risks, then I, I categorize them as something more harmful to you. Side effects that you can get from an epidural, the most common side effect is where your blood pressure has a rapid decline. And what happens is, is when your blood pressure has a rapid decline, there's less blood that's getting to your baby. And because it happens so fast, your baby's heart rate can go down as a result. Now, we have medications and IV fluids that we give you in order to remedy that. Um, however, it is a, a possible side effect and babies do not like it. Um, 
if that happens to your baby, then usually the nurse will turn you to your side and give you some oxygen and give you increased fluids. And if you have Pitocin on for an induction, would shut that off. Along with what happens to the baby if your blood pressure goes down, you may feel not so great yourself. Some people will report feeling a ringing in their ears, feeling dizzy. Some people will even pass out um, briefly and some people will feel super duper nauseous. Those are all possible things that you would feel if your blood pressure went down. And again, it's, you know, it can be remedied pretty easily for the most part, but it is a side effect to be prepared for. Um, another common side effect is itching, and that's kind of a reaction to the medication that you're getting in your epidural, the opioid medication. It is not an allergic reaction. It is a normal side effect, and it could be super annoying sometimes. It doesn't mean that you're going to get the itching, but it is pretty common. Um, you have the option to ask for Benadryl to help remedy that itching. However, keep in mind that Benadryl can also make you really tired. So you kind of want to weigh one against the other. And what I tell my patients is, is that if the itching is so prominent and you can't think about anything else, then maybe consider getting Benadryl. But if the itching is not too crazy, you can tolerate it, then you know you can try to put ice packs on um, to avoid having to take Benadryl. Another thing that you need when you have an epidural is that most people cannot have bladder control, so they cannot pee on their own. And that necessitates the insertion of a catheter into your bladder in order to empty your bladder. With a catheter insertion, that can increase your risk for getting a UTI. So this is just one other part of the sequela of getting an epidural. Now, along with those things, you have a need to get increased IV fluids. And the reason for that is, is because we want to offset the possibility, we want to prevent the likelihood of your blood pressure going down. And so when we give you lots of IV fluids right before and during the procedure, that can help offset the likelihood that your blood pressure is going to go down. But what happens is, is when you get a lot of IV fluids, sometimes it can actually make you more puffy and it can also inflate the baby's weight. So when your baby's born, your baby will weigh extra because of fluid in their body. And then in a day or two when they're reweighed, their weight loss may actually be inflated. So if they weigh eight pounds, all babies lose weight after they're born. If they weigh eight pounds um, and they had a lot of fluid from those eight pounds and then they lose more than 10% of their weight, then you know the staff can start to become concerned that maybe they're not getting enough food. However, sometimes it's a result of them just having too much fluid over labor because they had the epidural. Now, another side effect that happens in about 1% of people who get an epidural is called a spinal headache or a spinal tap. And what that means is, is that when the epidural is inserted, it goes a little bit deeper than it was intended to. Now, again, it doesn't touch your spinal cord, but it enters the spinal space and there is spinal fluid in that spinal space. And so what happens is, is that the spinal fluid, some of it is drained through the hole that the epidural needle makes. And while it's not dangerous, it can cause a severe migraine, a severe headache. There's a way to remedy that severe headache by providing something called a blood patch, where that kind of replaces the 
spinal fluid temporarily. Um, it works really for the most part. It works. Sometimes I'll hear people say that it didn't work, but for the most part, it should work if it's done correctly. And Sometimes your anesthesiologist will actually know at the time that they inserted the epidural that they, you know, tapped the spinal space by mistake, and they'll be able to let you know ahead of time, you know, give you the heads up that, hey, you're probably going to have a headache, so you may want to look out for it in the postpartum period, and um, if you do feel that headache, just get that blood patch while you're still in the hospital, because sometimes some people have to go back after a few days in order to get that blood patch. Now, things that are very rare but are risks are something called a high spinal. The spinal column, the higher it goes, the higher up functions of your body are controlled. So we want the epidural to be inserted in the lumbar area of your spinal cord, which is almost the lowest area, which controls like the nerves on your belly and on your legs. What happens is, is occasionally, if it is accidentally inserted higher up, then it will start to paralyze your breathing muscles, your diaphragm, and that can cause a breathing emergency. Um, so again, it is rare, but it is a risk that can happen. Another very rare risk is nerve damage. It is super low, and the anesthesiologists like to tell the patients the risk of getting nerve damage from an epidural is actually lower than getting hit by lightning. So I just realized that I forgot to mention another side effect that people can complain about is back pain from an epidural. But studies have found that patients, just about the same amount of patients who got an epidural have back pain as the patients that didn't get an epidural. And the theory for that is, is you have your baby, you know, passing through your birth canal um, by your lower back, and that also puts pressure on your lower back. So a lot of times the back pain can be, usually can be from the labor itself. However, sometimes there will be some pain at the epidural insertion site, and usually it's resolved after a few months. People worry whether there's an increased risk for C-section if there is an epidural. There actually is not an increased risk of C-section that was found in research studies. However, some people's labors may be a little bit longer and they may have a longer pushing phase. And those with an epidural do have a higher likelihood of having an instrumental vaginal delivery with either forceps or a vacuum. Another very, very rare risk that can happen if you get an epidural is called a spinal hematoma. And hematoma means a collection of blood. So when the epidural catheter comes out, there may be a pooling of blood that can cause pressure on the spinal cord. And that's what can, God forbid, cause spinal damage. Um, so the bleeding may not stop over there. Again, it is extremely rare. And actually, this is why anesthesiologists worry about your platelet count and they want your platelets. That's the part in your blood that is responsible for clotting. They want those platelets to be a good level. I'm going to answer what the level should be in a little bit, but they want them to be a good level because they will clot up the blood and make sure that there's not a pooling, an accumulation of blood by your spinal cord. Before you get the epidural, the anesthesiologist is going to come in and they are going to interview you and they're going to briefly explain the things that I did. But when you're in a lot of pain and you're waiting for that epidural, you can't really comprehend and understand what you're getting yourself into. And that's why it's so important to know these things ahead of time. And also they can't really like expound on every last detail that I'm doing here in this 30, 40, 50 minute 
episode, but you will have a discussion about the basic risks and benefits and you'll sign a a consent form that you understand the risks and benefits and that you consent to having the epidural. There is something called a CSE, which is a combined spinal and an epidural. Remember how I talked about the spinal space that's a little bit past your epidural space? So if you go into the spinal space with a smaller needle, then it won't cause that spinal headache. The benefit of having a spinal lock is that it works stronger and it works really quickly. I love the CSEs actually. Some anesthesiologists, will, they will give you a CSE, so they'll insert the epidural needle and then they'll insert a smaller needle just into your spinal space, give you an initial dose of medication into your spinal space that's going to start working really quickly and that's going to be really dense. And it'll wear off in about one to two hours, and then the epidural medication will kick in after that. So sometimes people will report saying like, wow, my epidural is working so great. And then in about two hours, uh uh uh-oh, they suddenly start feeling something and they get anxious. That's likely because you got a CSE and the spinal part of it is wearing off. But worry not, you will have epidural medications that will be infusing. And if you have that PCA pump, you can hit that PCA pump. And if neither of those things are working, you can see the anesthesiologist again and troubleshoot. So let's actually talk about troubleshooting with an epidural. Like I explained to you, it could be because you had a CSE. It also could be because you need an extra top off of medication through your epidural. Maybe your labor is progressing and you would need more medication. Another possibility is that your epidural may actually need to be replaced so that epidural catheter that was placed in you can sometimes not be placed correctly and that medication may not be infusing into the right space in order to give you that pain control. It can also be infusing only to one side, and sometimes you'll hear people saying that they had a one-sided epidural, um, everyone's worst nightmare. Sometimes reinserting that catheter can provide the pain relief. However, it won't always work, and just, I guess, because of people's individual anatomy, it may still just be one-sided. There's also something called a window where you may feel pain relief on the majority of your abdomen, but there will be some small space where you will feel pain. Um, And again, sometimes just people's anatomy is like that and it cannot take away all the pain. Now, epidurals usually work for about 90% of people beautifully, but there is that 10%, unfortunately, where something is a little bit not fun and not great. And so... That's why it's so important to educate yourself and to come prepared with other coping mechanisms um, in case that happens to you. Now, along with those two ways to troubleshoot where the anesthesiologist can give you extra medications or replace the epidural, you know, have you sit up again and redo it. They can also switch the basal rate, which is the continuous infusion rate of medication into your epidural. Sometimes they may need to increase it. Um, And sometimes we'll see where people are super duper numb, too numb, and sometimes decreasing that uh, basal rate can really help them be able to move a little bit more. So we want you to be able to move um, when you have an epidural because it's really beneficial to be switching into different positions when you are in labor, even when you have an epidural, and it's not to your benefit to stay on your back the entire time. If you are someone who experiences pain after you had an epidural insertion, 
do not hesitate to ask to see the anesthesiologist. I've heard of patients say that they were complaining of increased pain and their nurse just told them, sorry, like there's nothing we can do about it. Make sure that you see an anesthesiologist to confirm that and get all of your questions answered because that's not true in most cases. And even if it's time for you to push and you're feeling that pain, you can still do all of those things and the options will remain yours. So, you know, you can choose to get more medication or you can choose to have your catheter reinserted. Or you may say, hey, listen, like the baby is really low, I'm almost about to push. So let me just try pushing and getting the whole entire thing over with. But when you have an epidural place, the goal is to take away almost all of your pain, especially the sharp pain of contractions. However, once your baby's head gets lower, it's very normal to feel rectal pressure. So the same pressure like you feel when you have to poop. And it's actually a good thing to feel that because that's going to help us. First of all, that's going to help inform us that your baby is close to coming. And secondly, you're going to be able to use that sensation to help you push your baby out. It used to be that epidurals were more dense, which meant that mothers were able to move less. And also they were able to feel a lot less when they were pushing. Um, however, today it's evolved and we've gotten better at fine tuning what the dosage of medication should be in order for mothers to feel relief from the sharp, painful contractions, but yet feel that rectal pressure, which is what I like to explain as a dull pressure. Now, it's also important to know that there's no perfect calculation to determine how much medication you'll need in your epidural infusion to relieve your pain. There's the standard range that the anesthesiologist will set. Um, people who are bigger may need a higher dose and people who are smaller may need a lower dose. And going back to all of the troubleshooting that we discussed, if your blood pressure is really low or became really low after you got your epidural inserted, then the anesthesiologist may hesitate to give you like an extra top off or an extra dose of medication through your epidural because um, we don't want to put you in that precarious situation where your blood pressure will be too low and, you know, that will affect your baby in a not good way. Another thing that I think is really helpful to know about getting an epidural is that the anesthesiologist is not always available at the moment that you request them. And that depends on a lot of different factors. So some hospitals have a dedicated anesthesia team just for the OB unit, and other hospitals have an anesthesia team that is housewide. So they're there for general surgeries and other procedures, plus they come to OB. Um, so you can ask your midwife or doctor how it works in the hospital that you're going to be giving birth in, whether there's a dedicated OB anesthesia team or whether they're housewide, and you can discuss like, what's the availability of the anesthesiologist should I request an epidural? When people are deciding whether or not they want an epidural, and I know that a C-section is scheduled to, um, to start soon, or if I see that we are anticipating a potential C-section, then I'll give the patient a heads up and let them know, hey, the anesthesiologist may be detained in the OR for about an hour. So just keep that in mind when you're deciding if you want the epidural now or if you want to wait a little bit longer. In some hospitals, there's actually no anesthesiologist in-house let's say at night and during off hours and they would have to be called in or there's no OB 
in-house during off hours, and they would have to be called in if a patient got an epidural. So if that's the case for you, it's just good to keep all of that in mind because it may take a little bit longer for you to get your epidural. Before you get your epidural, the anesthesiologist needs to know your blood lab values. And like we discussed, one of the most important ones is your platelet count because your platelets are responsible for um, the clotting factors in your blood. And I've seen it work in different ways. In a lot of hospitals, when the patient comes to the unit, then they draw their blood. It usually takes about an hour for the blood work to come back. And some anesthesiologists will insist on waiting for that current lab values. However, many times anesthesiologists will say, listen, we have all of the prenatal labs of this patient. She has no conditions that would make us suspicious of having low platelets, and all of her platelets thus far have been good. And so the anesthesiologist will be comfortable performing the epidural just with those lab values. But again, it's an individual provider preference. So your anesthesiologist may be insistent on waiting for your labs to come back. So if you come into the hospital in active labor and you want the epidural like ASAP, you may have to wait. Another thing that um, you would have to have is an IV. And like we discussed before, you're going to have to have a lot of IV fluids, especially during the insertion time. It used to be common practice to infuse at least two liters, so infuse at least two of those large bags of IV fluids into you before you can even get your epidural. That's actually no longer evidence-based, but unfortunately, I see that most hospitals do still practice that way. The Society for Obstetric Anesthesia and Perinatology say that that's no longer a practice that should be adapted and that actually you can just have those fluids infusing really fast during the actual insertion of the epidural and you should be fine. Now, again, if something is done a certain way in a hospital, you'll probably have a pretty hard time convincing them to do it otherwise. And it can take over an hour for those fluids to infuse. So that's just something good to keep in mind. I had a question on Instagram. I put out a question in an answer box about epidurals. And I had a question on Instagram asking me about what platelet count up and you know how low is your platelet count have to be in order for an epidural to be contraindicated it used to be that your platelet count needed to be over 150 but this again has since changed and like i explained to you before the reason why we want your platelet count to be good is because we want to avoid a spinal hematoma and usually anything over 80 is fine if the patient has no other underlying conditions. And to quote the Society for Obstetric Anesthesia and Perinatology, SOAP, they say multiple retrospective studies have found minimal risk for epidural hematoma after neuraxial procedures on patients with platelet counts between 70 and 100, and that the incidence was found to be less than 0.2%. Um, there's not really research on below 70 uh, for a platelet count, so that probably would be contraindicated. But throughout your pregnancy, you will have lab work to look at your platelet counts. So if they are low, it's really important to have that conversation with your OBGYN and even to ask for a consult with the anesthesia team in the hospital you'll be giving birth in to learn about your options and your specific situation and you know whether an epidural may be contraindicated, what you can do in order to get your platelet count up, etc. But it is good to know that 
really the count can be a lot lower than 150. Now, what are other contraindications to an epidural? If there are spinal deformities or if there's been certain kind of spinal surgeries, then it may be contraindicated for you to get an epidural. If you have some severe infection, then it may be contraindicated for you to get an epidural as well. And having some spinal deformities, it's not always a definite no. So I had the question of what if I have scoliosis what's, you know, what's the deal with that? And there are different degrees of scoliosis. Some people have a really bad curvature of the spine, um, and that would probably make it more difficult to insert the epidural. And other people may have scoliosis, but it may not be so bad. So it may make it easier to get the epidural inserted. And if you're worried that that may be you, then again, I encourage you to inquire about whether you can have a consult with the anesthesia team in the hospital prior to actually coming in labor to figure out your options and to see that maybe if an epidural is not in your cards, there are other ways for you to learn how to cope with labor and there are other Um, medications that can help you with pain that you should be learning about. You can always ask for an anesthesia consult, even if you're not actually in labor yet. Um, I don't know if every hospital routinely offers it, but there's definitely no harm in asking. I forgot to mention an important side effect of an epidural, which is fever. So sometimes with an epidural, a patient can get fever, and it's not necessarily an infection. It's just a fever from the epidural. Um, The way we can sometimes determine whether the fever is from an epidural or the fever is from an actual infection is, again, by drawing labs, but it may take some time for those labs to come back. And we take infection during labor very seriously because it can cause the baby to be infected. So it's more common than not, you will get IV antibiotics to treat a fever and it will be viewed as an infection, whether or not we're able to distinguish um, whether it's a true infection or fever from an epidural. And so what happens with that is that there is a greater likelihood that you'll you may have some, you may be separated from your baby because in many hospitals, if you have a fever, no matter what, your baby is going to have to go to the NICU. And that is the theory for why the breastfeeding rates for those who have an epidural um, have been found to be lower than those who don't have an epidural. I'm sure that there are many factors that you know, affect and influence this. I, I don't know if it's been narrowed down to whether it was a mix of high-risk patients and not. So I would imagine p- patients who are high-risk um, are more likely to get an epidural and they may then more likely be more likely to be separated from their baby due to complications either on the mother's side or the baby's side. So it has been found that the breastfeeding rates for people with an epidural are lower. And so that's just another thing to keep in mind when you're deciding whether or not you're going to get an epidural. When you get an epidural, um, in some hospitals, they make everybody that's not a hospital staff leave, and it's just you left with your nurse and with the other hospital staff that needs to be there for the insertion of your epidural. However, in other hospitals, you can have a support person stay with you. They won't necessarily be right next to you, but they can be sitting somewhere near you. And of course, make sure if you can have that, that that support person is not likely to faint. And if they feel dizzy, lightheaded or whatever, let them leave like ASAP. Um, And a lot of times that's the reasoning that an anesthesiologist will have for not wanting anyone else in the room um, during the epidural insertion. 
Of course, it may also make them a little bit more anxious, you know, performance anxiety when there's someone else that's watching them. So again, once again, this is a provider preference. So it's something that the anesthesiologist usually, you know, calls the shots on. Um, But AWAN, which is the Association for Women's Health Obstetric and Neonatal Nurses, they do support that a woman have a choice to have their support person present for insertion because when they looked at women who got an epidural and had a support person with them, they saw that the satisfaction rates um, with the whole entire epidural procedure were much higher. So again, if you're wondering about that, it's a great question to ask your OBGYN or your midwife, how does it work in the hospital? Can my support person stay or not? And if you're feeling like you strongly really want your support person there and you're told prior to getting to the hospital or even when you get to the hospital that that's not an option, you can still ask for an exception and it's much better to explore that exception before you're actually in labor. So explore it with your OBGYN and say, hey, listen, I have a lot of anxiety. I have needle phobia, whatever it is. And it would really make me feel much more comfortable. Is there any way we can make an exception? Um, The answer might be no again, but it doesn't hurt to ask. Another question that people have is, what is my diet going to be like after I have an epidural? And once again, the evidence says that it's totally fine to have a clear liquid diet. Now you're considered to be under the care of anesthesia. So in case you had surgery, we want you to have an empty stomach. I cannot get into the discussion about eating or not during labor and the research and what all of that says. I will do that at another time. But some hospitals are really strict and they let you only have ice chips. That's not the gold standard. Best practices is to allow women to have at least clear liquid, clear fluid. So that's anything like juice, jello, uh, chicken broth, um, you know, tea, and anything that you can kind of see through any liquids, ginger ale, water, of course. So again, this is something that you want to explore with your obstetric provider before you even go into the hospital, just so you're prepared and you have a nice discussion about that. But that's normal practice is to provide clear fluids to a patient unless there's a high suspicion that there may be a C-section. Because before surgery, it is important to not eat and drink anything for a certain amount of time beforehand. So with this information, I tried to answer a lot of the questions that I got asked on um the Instagram stories, but I do have a few more questions that I want to answer. Somebody asked about scoliosis and um, last time that they got an epidural, they had a lot of pain and it was not an effective epidural. Any suggestions for next time around? So, um, you know, like I said, if there are certain spinal structural abnormalities, then that definitely might affect the efficacy of receiving an epidural the next time. My first suggestion to you would really be to explore other pain control options. There are other pharmacological medical pain control options that you have. And then also to really explore um, labor coping mechanisms to understand normal physiology of labor, to understand that even though it can be painful, you don't have to necessarily suffer to get su- the support of a doula and request a consult with anesthesia well before it's time for you to give birth, discuss these concerns with your obstetric provider. And especially if you're giving birth in another, a new hospital, um, it may be worthwhile exploring even more because a lot of it depends on the anesthesiologist's skill. I would also say that find out last time maybe you had a resident that was learning and that was not as skilled and experienced in placing epidurals. Um, If that was someone that placed it, then you may feel a little bit more reassured if possibly 
you know, a more experienced anesthesiologist or an anesthesiologist that has um, experience with spinal, you know, abnormalities can place it. Of course, you can't always control which anesthesiologist is going to be there. But those are all things that you may want to explore to possibly try to make this experience better. I would also say that if the birth that you had was your first birth, then the good news is, is usually sequential births are shorter in duration. So it may make you feel better to know that you may have a, a shorter labor. So it may make it easier for you to cope that way. Someone else asked about factor 11 deficiency. And basically, that's another blood clotting factor in our blood. And this person has a deficiency in this factor, which again, just like having low platelets can affect the length of time that it takes for their blood to clot and may increase their risk of having um, a spinal hematoma. Now, in terms of different clotting factor deficiencies, I would recommend discussing with your obstetric provider to refer you to a hematologist, which is a blood doctor, because you can kind of decide with them based on the severity of it you know, maybe you'll be able to get some of the factor prior to getting the epidural and, um, you know, maybe it'll work that way because a lot of people who have different factor deficiencies, they receive the artificial factor in order to help their blood clot. So um, discuss with your obstetric provider about that. And again, I will say it for a hundred times over if I need to ask for a consult with anesthesia. Now, I had someone who asked me, um, I actually happened to have been there at her labor, and all the way at the end, she started feeling a lot of pain, again, during pushing. Sometimes we just tell the patients, like, you're almost there, push. Some patients will always feel the pain of the baby crowning that short amount of time. We don't have this perfect formula and perfect calculation for, you know, knowing exactly how to address someone's pain with the epidural. So she wanted to know, you know, after a little bit of time with the team trying to tell her, like, the baby's so close, just try to push the baby out. She still really felt like she could not handle the pain. And she had the option, like you always do, to ask for a replacement of the epidural or to get extra medication into her epidural. This person in particular, her blood pressure really tanked after she got the epidural, so they were a little bit afraid of that and maybe a little bit hesitant. But um, at the end, the decision was made to give her the extra dosage of medication. So we stopped the pushing, she got the extra dose of medication and it worked for her. However, some people will feel overwhelming pressure at the end and even getting extra medication is not necessarily going to make it better. And also the medication is gonna take longer to come out of their system and it's gonna take them longer to be able to move after they have their baby. We really want you to be able to get up as soon as you can. The typical length of time is about two hours after shutting off your epidural when you'll really be able to be steady on your feet, but everyone's different and some people can take even longer than that. So if you get like a, a dose, an extra dose of bolus of medication right before you give birth, it might increase the likelihood of that and it also may not take away the pain. So it's a balancing act. There's no perfect answer, but if you feel very strongly that you want that extra pain medication regardless, then you can insist on it and you can ask for it and you have the right to ask for it. This leads me to discussing the fact that it is unethical to withhold pain medication from a woman in labor who is asking for it. The ACOG Practice Bulletin on Obstetric Analgesia 
and Anastasia says that there is no other circumstance in which it is considered acceptable for an individual to experience untreated severe pain that is amenable to safe intervention while the individual is under a physician's care. Many women desire pain management during labor and delivery, and there are many medical indications for analgesia and anesthesia during labor and delivery. And they say that in the absence of a medical contraindication, maternal request is a sufficient medical indication for pain relief during labor. So like I said, again, if you are requesting pain relief during labor, it is your human right to receive that pain relief. And that leads me to another great question that I got, which is, what is the earliest and latest time during labor that you can get one safely, that you can get an epidural safely? And going back to this ACOG practice bulletin, when you ask for one, and research has actually been done on whether getting an epidural too early caused an increase in the risk of you having a C-section, and actually it hasn't been shown to do that. So sometimes I have patients that are really worried, like I'm only two centimeters, but I'm really feeling a lot of pain, um, and I feel like I'm my ability to cope with it is running out, but is it too early? And just so you know, yes, your labor might be a little bit longer, your contractions may spread out a little bit possibly, um, and you may need, you know, maybe some Pitocin in order to get them closer together. However, your likelihood of having a C-section is not higher than somebody who gets an epidural later on in labor. And To that, I say that when someone is decided that they're going to get an epidural, you don't need to be feeling excruciating pain. You do want to be feeling some level of pain, and this helps us kind of gauge how effective the epidural anesthesia is. So you don't want to be having no pain at all, and obviously that's just going to keep you in bed for longer, and you're going to need to have a a urinary catheter in you for longer. But if you're feeling a level of pain where you're kind of really starting to focus on that pain and not on much else, then that's a great time to ask for the epidural because you'll still be able to tolerate the pain enough to sit still for the epidural because it is a procedure where sitting still is of utmost importance. But, you know, you'll have gone a little bit and you'll have had the benefits of staying upright in labor. And um, how late can you get an epidural until your baby is crowning? like literally until your baby is crowning. But sometimes if a patient comes in and they're almost fully dilated, it will be faster for them to push the baby out than to wait for the epidural. And it is painful to sit upright still through contractions while getting an epidural. And especially some women will feel like this overwhelming pressure. But if you come in at 10 centimeters and you don't want to push unless you have epidural anesthesia, and there are some women that will do that, and it is traumatic for them to give birth without the epidural anesthesia, then you have the right to request for it. Now, how things are going to work in the hospital and how agreeable the anesthesiologist is going to be, I can't tell you because there are definitely factors that the hospital staff can manipulate in order to make it so that you won't get it and they can justify it. Like they can say, well, we need your labs to come back and you need to get these two bags of fluid, which like I said earlier is not evidence-based anymore, but they can manipulate things a little bit. So keep all of that in mind, but from a technical standpoint, you can get an epidural until your baby's crowning. By the time your baby's crowning, then, you know, it's not really best practice to squash your baby's head between your vagina and the bed to sit up for an epidural. 
Um, so next question that I have is why do epidurals fail or stop working? So like I said earlier when I was talking about troubleshooting, um, the reasons may be because the infusion needs to be set at a higher rate or because the placement maybe isn't good or because maybe you got that CSC that combined spinal epidural and the spinal part of it is wearing off and you need more pain medication through your epidural. Someone else asked, is a spinal headache any more likely to reoccur in a subsequent delivery? And to that I say yes. Um, we do see that patients who have had it prior, it is important for you to mention that to anesthesia. Sometimes um, when someone has very little tissue on their back and their back is really, really thin and skinny, um, it's more possible for the needle to go through that space and to go into the spinal space. So it's good for the anesthesiologist to kind of get the heads up. It doesn't mean it will for sure happen. And it's actually really good for them to know so they can be more cautious about it. But um, it is definitely a higher likelihood just from what I see. I'm, I'm not quoting any research here, but just from what I see, I do see patients who have had it before do have a higher likelihood to have it again. Someone asked me about, you know, what is a walking epidural? Like I said previously, we've become better at our medication rate and dosage through epidurals in order to allow a woman to move around more and feel rectal pressure while controlling the sharp pain of her contractions. Um, and because the epidurals are less dense, where you're less paralyzed in your legs, you can move your legs better. Many people can actually get into crazy, amazing positions in bed. Like they can get on all fours, they can squat. I have patients that were basically standing, squatting on a bar and Someone always needs to be there to support the patient in that when they have an epidural. But there are some facilities, they are few and far between, that offer walking epidurals. It sounds like a dream come true to be able to have that pain relief while at the same time to be able to be upright and walk because that's one of the main things that you're restricted from when you have an epidural. But it's very rare to have that. And I guess whoever, whichever hospital has fine-tuned it so well, good for them. Even if you can move well, you know, nurses have different levels of comfort as to how much they will encourage you to move or discourage you not to move. Um, but I, I'm a huge proponent of moving as much as you can, even with an epidural. And thankfully, we do have more options today to do that. The same person asked, you must stay in bed during an epidural. For the most part, in most places, yes, but that does not mean that you cannot reposition yourself in lots of different positions from side to side, putting your legs in certain ways um, to, you know, open your pelvis in different ways to get help get your baby's head down. I love to just, you know, turn my patients into all different positions. And I have it down to science in terms of wherever the baby is, we can do a position that corresponds to that to help the baby get even lower down. And in pushing, this is super important. Every 15 to 20 minutes, you should be repositioning. Pushing on your back is the worst way to push for a variety of reasons. So I highly encourage you to move as much as you can. And if you want to try to get a feel for how the epidurals work in the hospital, whichever hospital you're going to be giving birth at, have the conversation with your obstetric provider, your doctor or your midwife say like, what is the epidural going to be like in the hospital? Am I going to be able to move at all? Or am I going to be super numb? Because there still are hospitals that are giving very dense epidurals, very heavy epidurals, and patients have a hard time moving. Um, sometimes they really cannot move. Not only that, but I see that 
their blood pressures tend to tank um, much more frequently when they have that heavy dense epidural, which would make sense because they're getting more of that medication. So you can have that conversation with your provider so that you know what to expect. And if this is something really important to you, you ask all these questions and you're getting answers that like, you know, they're doing things a little bit more the old way in the hospital that you plan on giving birth, it may be a factor for you to reconsider where are you giving birth? Of course, there are many, many, many different factors that you know affect your decision as to who you use and where you give birth. But these are all good questions to ask for your provider. And if you're having other doubts and then you, know, you get these answers, they may just settle things for you more. Um, and then someone asked, is it a must if you are induced? No, it's not a must. I'm actually testimony to that. I had an induction and I did it without an epidural. That doesn't mean that you have to. The thing with inductions is that a lot of times they can take longer than actual spontaneous labor. And so you can get more tired. Um, The Pitocin does tend to give you a different kind of contraction. I, I don't like to say that it's more painful. I definitely see that it peaks, you know, higher, like there's a, um, a narrower slope that goes up to the middle, which is the peak and the hardest part of the contraction. And you also, because it's a an artificial form of oxytocin, your body's not co-creating other hormones to help you cope with the labor as well as um, it would if you had spontaneous labor. So it's definitely a lot more common for people who have an induction But especially if this is not your first baby, if you don't have many, many hours of needing to cope with this, then you may not need to get the epidural if you're, you know, set on that. But keep an open mind. And for people who may have a contraindication with getting epidural, if it's questionable, like the person before who talked about having scoliosis and her epidural not working, you may want to really try to do everything within your control to avoid having an induction unless absolutely necessary. So this would mean waiting the latest that you can if you're overdue, say all the way to 42 weeks, even though um, you know inductions are recommended to be scheduled somewhere between 41 and 42 weeks if a woman hasn't given birth yet. But if everything is safe and good, then trying to really give yourself the longest window of time to see if you can go into spontaneous labor where you will more likely be able to cope with it than having an induction. So I think I answered most of the questions that you had. I hope that you enjoyed the information I give here. I am in the process of developing an awesome labor course where I'm going to include information such as this in it plus much more. And if you are about to have a baby soon and you want to get education on what happens after the birth, don't forget that I have my online course called After the Birth and I give you so many pearls of wisdom and amazing information about how to just thrive in that postpartum period and how to feel like you are rocking it, knowing what's normal. And I give you so much information on tips and things and tricks that I got over the years as a nurse and I love like hacks and things like that. So I tell you all of that stuff and a lot of the stuff that you probably will not get from the nursing staff when you're in the hospital and a lot of education that there's just not enough time to get when you're in the hospital. And I I give you great questions to ask, um, great tips for self-advocacy. Although I don't have a labor course out yet with pearls of wisdom like the ones that I gave here in 
this podcast, you are able to get that after the birth education from me through my course online. So go to yolwazitacademy.com slash store where you will see the course. It's called After the Birth. I'm also going to put it in the show notes here in the episode so you can access it there as well. I have some phenomenal, phenomenal, really exciting episodes coming out. I have the most incredible people scheduled to be interviewed. I I just like major personalities, like major, major, major people and birth stories of influencers and social media that are like huge. So some really epic episodes coming out really soon. So stay tuned for those. If you are not subscribed yet to the podcast on either Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or any of the other apps that you listen to your podcast, then subscribe so that you get notified because I'm telling you, you're going to want to listen to those episodes. Thanks for tuning into the Happy Birthway Podcast. Head over to Yolwedit Academy on Instagram to continue the conversation. You'll find the link in the episode show notes, as well as links to any additional resources, products, and services mentioned here. If you love listening to this show, you can help it grow by sharing it with your friends and rating and reviewing it. To stay in the loop when new episodes are released, make sure to subscribe. Remember that your health needs are unique and require individualized medical advice. The podcast is not a replacement, and some of the information may not be appropriate for your specific circumstances. My mission is to educate you so that you can confidently collaborate with your healthcare team. I believe that a healthy mom and healthy baby are simply not enough. We also need a happy mom with an empowering birth experience.